Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2022 Chief Medical Officer Summit 360 on the topic of best practices for cross-functional communication strategies for the CMO. For more information about the CMO Summit, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. All right, so we were asked to talk about um, cross-functional communication, how you would uh, communicate with different audiences, different venues, uh, some tricks and tra uh, practices of the trade that we could use to be effective in our communication. Um, and as I thought about this at a high level, you know, and, and this came from multiple talks this, this couple days, you know, we use five different vocabularies that I came up with when we talk and do our presentations, particularly like our pitches. So we talk about clinical development uh, with all the language there, clinical operations, regulatory, uh, safety, and the last one is uh, statistics. So all of these use different language and you're doing it in the same presentation. So you could see that just at a high level before you even get into your science and into your story, it's a pretty complex endeavor to try to put this together. So uh, we're going we're gonna to tackle these three topics. Uh, the first one is how do you sell the science? Um, and I'm going to let, uh, let's go down the row here, introduce yourself first, and then talk about what you would do and how you would approach uh, selling the science, let's say, to investors first. Sure. Hi. My name is Stephen Hewn. I'm the CMO for Pipeline Therapeutics, a small biotech company in Southern California, uh, taking a small molecule approach for neuroregeneration. Um, you want to? finish the introductions? Well, just go ahead and say what you would say and then we'll pass it down. So uh, when, when I give presentations, um, and I, I came from a world of academia at Stanford before entering biotech, um, and, and, I, and over the years, uh, I, I have yet to deliver the perfect presentation. Um, there's always ways I think I can get better, but one of the things I try to remember is that um, after the presentation, most people uh, don't remember any of your slides. Um, they don't remember much of what you said, but what they do recall is your demeanor, your credibility, your personality, if you will. Uh, and so those are things uh, that I try to have come through as I talk through a slide or the, as I talk through different data points, because ultimately what you want to do is give them a storyline, if, if you can create that, because many of the people that we talk to have to then relate the story that we just gave them to someone else. So I, I try to make it digestible and comprehensible, so I know that they've got a story that they can then talk about someone else in their organization about our company and our project. So I, I try to keep that in mind. Thanks. I'm Margaret Kozell. I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Excella Health, which is based here in Cambridge. We're a platform company. We're developing therapies that modulate uh, the metabolome or the metabolic system uh, using amino acids. Uh, so one of the things that I could do, uh, again, in tackling and trying to convey my enthusiasm is to tell the story about how I approach it as a physician, why I believe in it, where it is going. And I, I would echo your point. What you want to demonstrate is how you believe mm -hmm. and how strongly you feel and that passion, because that's what people will walk, that's what they will remember. And the credibility to say that this is grounded in science. This is grounded in clinical science. This is grounded in discovery science. This is grounded in statistical science. 
So I think it's a two-pronged message to, again, display enthusiasm and credibility at the same time and tell that story, sell that story to your audience. Great. Anna. Hi, I'm Anna Birkenblit. I'm Chief Medical Officer at Immunogen, and uh, we develop antibody drug conjugates. Uh, it's a pretty simple concept. You know, you have an antibody. It binds a target on a cell, internalizes it, kills the cell. A good target is one that's highly expressed on tumor tissue, not particularly expressed on normal tissue, so we can kill the tumor, spare normal tissue, and give patients more good days. Um, it's a pretty simple story, uh, but when we sell the science, um, my CEO and I take a partnered approach. And if an investor comes to us and says, hi, I'm, I'm a generalist, uh, and they, they seem a little scientifically nervous, then my CEO and I lock eyes and it's all his. You know, when we get the investor who comes in and says, oh yes, I'm, I'm a physician, I, you know, yaddy yaddy, then uh, he looks at me and I take the reins. And so I think you have to be able to size up who you're speaking with very rapidly and know how to say the same thing, three different levels of complexity. Yeah, exactly. And I'm Cadmus Rich, I'm Chief Medical Officer and head of R&D for Aura Biosciences. Um, we're an oncology company focusing initially in ocular oncology, now moving into bladder cancer. Uh, I thought I would use our technology and our story just briefly as an example. And, and I always think about the KISS concept, right? K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. And that's really the key thing. And, and there's three reasons to me to do that. One is obviously you wanna make it digestible, easy to remember. But to me, I think one of the more important things is you don't know which part of your story that that person wants to hear. And if you spend too much time in detail, you, you won't let them explore that part that they want. So you, you wanna give the story at a high level, make it compelling, make it interesting, uh, hit the key concepts, and then let them ask you what they want to hear about. So in our therapy, which you'll see in a minute, it's got quite, quite a complicated uh, mechanism with multiple places where people may be interested in asking questions. So on this first slide, uh, we talk about our receptor. We have a new drug class called viral-like drug conjugates, similar to an antibody drug conjugate, except we use the viral-like particle developed at the National Institute of Health to target what are called specifically modified heparin sulfate proteoglycans, or HSPGs. These are specifically expressed on cancer cells, not on normal cells. So our therapy has the advantage to bind to all different types of cancer while not binding to normal cells. So that's, that's the receptor and that's the tropism for our drug. Next slide. So if we look at the drug on the right, our, our main drug is called AU11. It also has a really good name that you don't want to communicate to investors called Belzupacap Serotalacan. So we just use AU11. <laughs> um, and this drug is a viral-like particle. It's an empty virus, virus capsule that's recombinantly made. And then there's a drug called IRDI700DX that is attached to the surface. It's a three-dimensional structure, so we have the advantage of multivalent binding because there's multiple binding sites, and it binds very tightly to tumor cells. And the, uh, the dye basically is a photosensitizer that light activates and causes singlet oxygen generation. So as you can see, we have a two-part mechanism. In the, on the uh, first, first part of the upper left, the drug binds to the tumor cell and then is light activated with laser energy. This is an IR laser, it's not a hot laser, it's, it's just to activate the drug and generate the singlet oxygen, which breaks down the, the cell membrane 
and boom, you get it, the cell basically explodes and opens up with acute necrosis. So there's no apoptosis, there's no shutdown of the cell. And so in the bottom, what you see is things are released from the cell. There's uh, tumor neoantigens and what are called damage-associated molecular patterns that upregulate the immune system and cause uh, it, both CD8 and CD4 T cells to be upregulated, which gives additional tumor cell-mediated killing as well as uh, memory response and a protection against tumor rechallenge. And we now have pre, pre -animal, we have animal data and preclinical that shows that it also um, causes uh, about 80% tumor, 80% uh, complete response rate in killing metastatic cells when you treat one of the lesions. So we're excited about that. So, you know, this there, obviously you can imagine how much uh, is behind all of these different pieces of this of this uh, mechanism. But keeping it very high level, making it simple, uh, allows the investor or the listener to to take away the key concepts about the receptor, about the particle, the dye, and the two mechanisms of, of killing. Uh, and, and then hopefully the long-term anti-tumor immunity we're hoping to generate with the second part of the mechanism. So, all right, we'll move to the next topic. Um, the next topic is how do you uh, deal with negative outcomes and um, you know, communicate these in the most effective way? And as we discussed in the, in the prep session, this is a really important topic, both internally with your staff, so people don't get demotivated or nervous and anxious, as well as with investors. So let's go the other way now. Anna, why don't we start with you and what you would do? Yeah, I think that's probably why I'm sitting here. Um, so uh, just by way of background, I joined Immunogen seven years ago um, with the goal of really setting the strategic course from the start because I had been involved in late phase uh, in large pharma where I had picked up other people's phase three trials and pushed them over the finish line. And I said, I wanna do it from the beginning and set the strategy. So this was a case of careful what you ask for, you just might get it. Uh, I set the strategy and then a few years later, our phase three trial read out negatively and um, it was a complete surprise to us. Turns out we made two mistakes. One was uh, a biostatistical mistake in hindsight that I would still make again and I own. Um, the second mistake that we made was kind of a biotech rookie mistake. We uh, followed the advice of our uh, CDX vendor uh, to simplify the scoring algorithm in phase three. Never ever change how you score and select for patients in phase three, um, but we did. And it diluted the patient population. And so, um, what I learned was that I didn't realize we had even made that decision as a company. I had been going around for two years saying, oh yes, we're selecting patients in phase three the way we did before. And the truth, the truth was we weren't. Like the clinical protocol that I was responsible for had the old way of selecting, uh, but we had switched our scoring method. And because we were a small biotech and how we had been organized, the decision-making and communication, there was a gap that we didn't realize until our phase three read out. Incredibly painful experience. Uh, we went back, we rescored the proper way, and if we selected the patients properly, the trial would have been just as positive as we had anticipated. So incredibly painful for a couple reasons. Uh, and there's internal and external messaging. And the external messaging was actually the easy part for me. It was the internal messaging that was incredibly difficult because 
because of the phase three failure, we had to do a restructuring. We had to figure out, we really had a bifurcated path. Either we do a do-over with our lead asset because we know it works and we shelve a lot of other things, or we put the lead asset on the shelf and do everything else that was in the pipeline. Uh, we, we had been a platform company, so we had many compounds uh, you know, in preclinical development. We had three compounds in early phase development, and it was a very difficult decision. We looked, the highest probability of success was to do a do-over. So we decided as a company to do a do-over. And in order to have enough money to do that, we had to basically stop our entire research, bench research, lab, wet lab activities, and lay off about two-thirds of the company. Um, walking around the company for a few months while this was going on was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And to accept accountability for a decision that I didn't even realize we had made, but I was the chief medical officer, so I had to be the face and the voice of it, and knowing that there were people in the company who had been part of the decision uh, was really hard, and I didn't know what to say for a while, and so I said nothing. And if you don't say something, if you don't communicate, people will create the story for you. Uh, and so I learned that I needed to start to communicate, and I really had to do some soul searching. Once I understood how I felt about it and came to terms with it and saw the path forward, it became very easy. But it was a few months that were really, really tough, and it was that internal communication because of the responsibility I felt for the company. Yeah, let's um, so a couple of things, and that sounds incredibly painful. Um, and I think to acknowledge the humanity when something happens. I, I was at another company where a trial did not read out as anticipated. And there were a couple of lessons I learned from that. Is one is always respect the effort that went into that. There are people, they did their best. Most people I've ever worked with go to work every day because they really actually want to help somebody do better. They want to help people get better. And to respect the fact that people tried. And we're human and we mess up. And I think to acknowledge that, um, that the company that I was working at the time was a finger pointing company. So the first exercise was who do we point the finger at. And I learned that that really destroyed the company from within. Forget the external stuff, what the investors thought. We cannibalized ourselves because of how we behaved. And the second lesson I learned from that was to think about failure up front. We, we spend a lot of time thinking about how things will work out, what our later clinical development plan is, assuming success. Now, we don't do that on the study planning level. Those of us who come from the clinical development world always have elaborate risk mitigation plans. But we don't always take that step into the later phase of development and say, okay, we think about what happens when phase two works, but not what happens when it doesn't work. And to have those discussions up front to say, what does good look like for us? And to be really hard and honest at the earliest phase, before you get the data, before you start th seeing things, and have that kind of discussion to say, okay, what does it mean? We're gonna get a green, we're gonna go ahead full speed, we're gonna get a yellow, what are we gonna do with that information? And are we really prepared to stop if we don't meet the following benchmarks? So that's one of the things I learned from that sort of exercise is to think ahead, to plan ahead, just like you plan all your other activities. Yeah, I, I think it, very good examples of, of, of learning. And I think all of us in this room um, uh, understand what a humbling experience it is to do drug development. 
Um, and, and, and at the end of the day, it's a human endeavor subject to all the things that we we're hearing about and what we're talking about. Um, what I've learned is that uh, a few things, um, as you're conducting studies and in no particular order, uh, be careful about over-interpreting blind data that's emerging. Um, if you've done your job as a CMO, you will in theory have prepared your CEO, the senior executive team, and the board for the, the failure points in the program, uh, the risks, the challenges, and you will have outlined mitigation strategies. And then sometimes you have to go so far as say, there, and there are things we don't know, and there's things I don't have answers to, particularly in early clinical development. Um, when the data comes across the threshold, many times it's a limited group of people internally that know that. Uh, I, I have found it better in those situations to interact with the CEO uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis so that he has some space to comprehend what's transpired. Um, and don't jump to conclusions about the first pass in the data because as you've heard, there's a lot more analysis that needs to go on. So don't overreact, it's an, it's a, it can be an emotional moment. So as a CMO, remember your training, you know, be overly objective as that data starts to come in and realize, you know, ask the question, did we miss by miles or did we miss by inches? Uh, because that will have a bearing on what happens next to the program. And, and part of that next communication strategy will rely upon what is the view of the CMO, what is the view of the clinical development team on whether this particular path should move forward. Um, so don't paint anyone into a corner with, with premature conclusions about the data until you've gone through it carefully. But at the same time, part of your job as a CMO, I think, is to be willing to be on the pointy end of a conversation, both internally and perhaps externally, with why it didn't work out and, and why it may not move forward. Um, so th th those are all things that, in no particular order that I've sort of learned in my years as CMO. Yeah, these are all great points. So what I, what I would add is sort of, sort of been touched on. I mean, two things, I, get in front of the failure, get in front of the negative news, put a positive, no, no blame, no point culture in place, right? And um, as my, one of my prior CEOs used to say, he said, uh, I have my crap the bed plan. And he didn't use that term, but you, you could imagine what he said. Uh, and basically that is your pivot. What is your pivot? And it's hard in biotech sometimes because we're small companies, but we just heard yesterday, 28% of phase three studies are successful, right? It's kind of crazy. So we should expect failure, plan for it, put in the communication and culture up front, make sure the entire C team is involved in the communication and showing the right culture and right response to whatever the issue is. So that, that, that's what I would say there. So uh, the, the last one, and I think probably one of the most challenging because we deal with it every single day, is aligning our communication with other stakeholders in the organization, right? Uh, us as the CMO, with the CEO, with commercial, with the board members and, and others. So Stephen, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I think when I look back on my first board presentation many, many years ago and how I now present to the board, you, you understand the, 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 the pathway that you've evolved on as a CMO. Um, I think part of what I have found successful, and it's a bit challenged by the virtual environment, which many of us find us in right now, is developing a routine uh, way to interact with the senior executives and the team. Uh, but also other staff in the company. And so um, I, I meet routinely with all the senior staff on, on a weekly basis. It's, it's sort of like making rounds when you're a, when you're a physician. And, and you can kind of let your hair down in some of those environments. And that's where you will learn 
the particular communication skills and learning skills of how particular executives and others want to communicate, want to hear information, and want to problem solve. So uh, what I found is a routine mechanism by which to communicate in an open way um, on, a, on a particular day, on a particular time every, every, every week has been very helpful. Yeah, I would echo that. I mean, you got to put in the time and just make an effort. Um, and we just had a new CFO join, and one of the things we spent our first hour, half of it was talking about how we like to communicate. What does he want to hear? What does he need from me? How does he want to hear it? Do people like emails or texts? There's some really basic things. And what is his learning style? Um, I come from a psychology background, so that's something I always ask about is how do people learn? Some people are visual learners, some people like data tables, whatever it is. Does he want a story? Help me deliver it to him in a, in a way and a content that he can understand. Great. So for me, one of the challenges has been aligning communication around the same information for different audiences. What you say externally to the street when you're a public company, what you say to the board when you're setting goals, uh, corporate goals, and then what you say to the teams when you're setting you know, functional goals, and then how you're doing your long-range plan to make all the math work. Um, and as a CMO, I feel like my responsibility will be to remind people that some parts of our plan are blue sky thinking and aspirational and, you know, very, very long shot, but they need to be there that way. And then it's my job when the data evolve to say, okay, we need to revise the strategy now. And knowing like when, when to insert myself to bring people down to reality and taking into consideration not just the data, but also you know, what our financial situation is, what we have committed to externally, it can be quite nuanced. And different people in the organization have different lenses and different roles, so you really have to make sure everybody understands the big picture, which can be challenging. Yes, certainly, that's definitely true. So, so for me, as I thought about this question, my CEO is a Catalan from Spain who's super optimistic and uh, always wants to tell the positive story and sort of downplay the negative or the data that's not as strong. And so we really have to, um, and, and she acknowledges this, and we have a natural tension of, you know, making sure the science is balanced, making sure the communication's balanced, but that the story's as compelling and as positive as it can be within that. And I think that's what we all try to do with our companies externally and internally too. I mean, we want the, the staff and people to be excited about what we're doing, what they're doing, trying to help patients. Uh, many of us are in oncology where we know many patients are dying. We're trying to save their life. So, uh, you know, I think, I think having that optimistic tone. And then one thing I would say here is get a presentation coach, get a good IR firm that um, you know, understands how to present data and do these types of pitches. Practice about a thousand times. Do the Q&A practice uh, that was touched on during the thing. Make sure all of those things are in place. And then you'll have a very compelling, very slick slide set to tell your story that will be more memorable and, and easier. Um, and you'll feel comfortable as the CMO that the science is there and your boss can feel comfortable that, you know, the the story is optimistic. It's polished. It's it's uh, it's it's you know. So it's it is a negotiation, and and it can be a tough one. 
So, um, but th those, those are my learnings from this. And we recently went through the IPO process and had to put our pitch deck together and give over 100 meetings, as, you, as you guys, many of you know, uh, between Testing the Waters and the Roadshow. And uh, we, we got a great firm. We put together excellent deck. A couple of these slides were, that I showed were, are in our deck and uh, super well received. Um, and, you know, I, I think we generated a lot of interest in those meetings. And um, you know that that communication and that that tension with the CEO and and our COO uh, and myself create created that kind of story that can be compelling. So, all right. Well, we only have a minute or two left. I, I'm interested. Uh, does anyone else have anything else they want to comment on, or maybe we'll take a question from the audience? The only thing I would encourage you is that at, at good times and bad. Many in the company, some of you will be surprised, but I will look for the CMO's reaction. And so to, to the extent that it's possible, remain calm in both the good and the bad times. That's, that's, great. that's great advice. I have a question about PowerPoint. It, the entire world of drug development is, is, exists on a PowerPoint. And you know, Amazon is famously doesn't use PowerPoints to make decisions. And I, I find that the, the, the medium of the PowerPoint is, um, is difficult. I mean, you spend hours sometimes trying to get it right because you're gonna present in a forum where that's the medium. But I feel like the story can be lost very easily in the PowerPoint. And the, these decks take on a life of their own. And there's, almost, there's no explainer for the deck. So I, I feel like that's a risk in some ways of, of getting the communication right. So I don't know if, uh, aside from, you know, arduously putting this together, have, have people used other strategies, supplementing the deck with narratives for certain um, points or, or anything else? I'm going to let others speak, but one of these days I'm going to have the courage to give a presentation without PowerPoint. And I would bet you that I could probably make the points easily and it'll probably be remembered more than if I gave a PowerPoint. Yeah, I think when you have PowerPoint, people are reading your slides. Um, you could have a great narrative and it can be a really great story. And if they're reading the slide, they'll look up and, you know, like in my example, they'll go, what's your receptor are you targeting after you just went over the receptor slide? And, mm -hmm. and you're like going, what are you doing? Are you listening yeah. to what I'm saying? So I do agree that you have to be careful with PowerPoints. Our general um, way of, of doing our presentations is we don't send decks out. Uh, we present the decks ourselves, And then if we're meeting with someone again, we may send them the deck as an update um, with a couple changes, but we always present the first deck ourselves, uh, and, and we, never, we never send the deck out to people because our story is very complex and we're treating choroidal melanoma, which most people haven't even heard of. Yeah. So we have a lot of education to do as well. So. We, we do um, the presentation the first time with our voiceover and, and hitting the highlights so that it, it's not lost, because you can definitely get lost. Yeah. Okay. yeah. We hardly ever use our deck. I mean, we have a corporate deck. It's on the website. But when we have investor calls, um, it's a phone call. And you know, if someone's new to the story and they want to go to the deck, sure, fine, we'll walk you through it. But otherwise, we'll just meet the investors where they are and you know, tell them the story. Um, if we mm -hmm. need a, one specific backup graphic, if you will, we'll, you know, call up slide number, whatever, but it's mostly just talking. Interesting. Thanks. Good. All right. Any other questions? Well, I think we're out of time, so we'll conclude. Thank you all. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Chief Medical Officer 360 Summit, our editorial podcasts and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you.